If you brought your Bible with you, I want to invite you to open up to the book of Titus. And that is where we are going to study God's word this morning. And I need to get turned back there myself. I am so thankful for the continued counsel that I receive personally from the elders. You know, just, just this last week, um, uh, in our elders meeting, there, they, there was an opportunity for them to provide feedback on the sermon that I preached. And, you know, and just, just the reminder, I, I felt very rushed towards the end of the sermon. And there are a couple of verses that really are very important ones that function as what I shared are the hinge verses for the entire book of Titus. And um, they, in a very loving and gracious way, reminded me not to hurry. That, you know, the pulpit will be there next week, and you'll have an opportunity. And, and um, I very much appreciated that exhortation because I spent uh, the time this week uh, regretting that I was unable to make the most of the time last week. And we are going to revisit uh, Titus 1 verses 15 and 16 as the outline indicates in your notes and I've titled this week's message the sufficiency and supremacy of the gospel and though God's instruction for us to silence false teachers to reproof false teachers and to evangelize false teachers hasn't changed since last week as it relates to the remainder of the instruction that comes in the book of Titus We need to have a deep and full understanding of how the end of chapter 1 is intended to assist our understanding of chapters 2 and 3. And so let's open the door by opening the text. Please uh, turn with me if you're not there at Titus chapter 1. And I'm going to read starting in verses 15 and 16. And I'll read chapter 2 verse 1. This is what it says for us. To the pure... All things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine." And last week we introduced Titus 1, verses 10 through 16. I actually used a very graphic illustration, which I thought was appropriate to describe them. And that was by calling them ministry maggots, okay? We spent some time even talking about uh, really the disgust and the disdain of of maggots and um, how... They make uh, many animals vulnerable to infection. I shared the experience of just even growing up on a, on a farm and how a, a maggot can really have a deadly effect as it finds a vulnerable place on an animal and can cause infection that can result in a systemic infection that can completely overtake an animal. And the same thing can happen spiritually when seeds of false doctrine are planted by false teachers that can actually infect the entire body of the church. And as a result, we see God's instruction given to us here in Titus from the Apostle Paul that applied to the church age today. False teachers need to be silenced because of the infections that they can spread from the rebellion that they have against God's word. 
which also lead to a host of other infections that we discussed. Uselessness, empty chatter, okay? Disunity, deception, religiosity. And verse 11 specifically says that they must be silenced. And in our second point of last week's message, we also saw that God's word calls us to reproof them, correct them. Verse 13 even says that false teachers should be corrected sternly And the emphasis, again, here is on precision. The root meaning of this adverb that uh, is used to describe the Greek word to correct them can literally mean to cut. And I didn't share this last week, but in 2 Timothy 2.15, we're all called as believers to um, accurately handle the word of truth, right? Rightly divide the word of truth. Literally, it means cut it straight. And I've mentioned that in in the last sermon. And so when it relates to false teachers, just like a carpenter whose measurements might be off, they may need to be corrected. It's true with false teachers as it relates to getting God's word correct, especially when they're not cutting it straight. And all of us can only imagine if we were currently living in a home or an apartment where the wood framing and the construction was cut without precision. That it wasn't cut straight, right? We would and should be a little bit nervous the next time maybe the next earthquake rolls around, right? We should. And I think uh, it, it says something. We, we know that the integrity, and we appreciate the integrity that comes with accuracy because it protects the integrity of the structures in which we live, and the same is true in the spiritual sense. The integrity of the structure of the church and its ministry is protected by the word of God being cut straight. Well, to build on this construction illustration, I would say when we silence false teachers, we, we in, in the end, are, are, are pulling the plug on their saw, right? We're, 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 we're pulling the plug, we're, we're stopping them. And then when we reproof them and we correct them, what we're doing is we're using the word of God and we're showing them where the measurements are are not correct, where they need to be um, corrected. And we do this, and I want to emphasize this again, and and tried to do a good job of this last week, to make sure that when we do that, that it's done in a loving and gracious manner. I said that it wasn't a, a license for us to be unkind. It isn't a license for us to be proud. But we want to be kind and gentle as we use the Word of God to expose Faults in the teaching. On a macro level, this is the responsibility, the corporate level, it's, it's the responsibility of the elders who are going to stand before God, holy God, and give an account for those who teach and preach in the ministries of the church. We, we give that account. Not, not anyone here. The elders will stand alone before God to give that account. But I also mentioned that on a micro level, on an individual level, we have a responsibility to have an impact too as it relates to silencing false teachers. And since most of the false teachers that we're aware of aren't inside of our church, right? You're limited on what you can do. You can silence them, but there may not necessarily be the opportunity to correct them. 
and one of the ways that we silence them, I, I mentioned that if we're listening to a podcast or the radio or, or a, a television program or reading a book, um, we can have the opportunity to, to, to turn them off. And we also have the opportunity to be on guard for the sake of our other brothers and sisters in the church who might be exposed to their influences. Well, there was a third God-honoring response that I shared last week, and that was that we need to evangelize them. We need to share the gospel. God wants false teachers to be evangelized. And I briefly introduced the fact that false teachers share common identities displayed in verses 15 and 16. And we're going to look at those just a little bit more intently this week because we ran out of time. And I do want to feature what Paul intended for Titus and us to see, and it can be summarized in one concise statement. The sufficiency and the supremacy of the gospel unleashes our understanding of Titus. The shared identities of false teachers remain the same, although you may have noticed, are they all in your notes, the identities? And I added identity crisis, just to give it a little bit of, of um, a, a, really the negative... Uh, qualities that, that they represent. They really do have an identity crisis. And the sufficiency of the gospel addresses pseudo-identities. The gospel addresses the issue of false faith. The gospel addresses the issue of false purity. The gospel addresses the issue of false thinking, a false relationship with God, false fruit. And this is going to become clearer as we study these verses together. But I want to start by dealing and explaining this phrase at the beginning of verse 15, which says this, to the pure, all things are pure. And the principle or proverb that Paul sets forth now needs to be really read and understood in the context of the development of what's already been said regarding false teachers on the island of Crete and particularly what's been said about their Jewish nature that's mentioned in verses 10 and 14. By pure, Paul means those who have truly believed in Christ and are free from the law as a means of righteousness before God. They are pure before God in that their sins have been forgiven and they are pure in their conscience to eat what was previously forbidden by the law. In Ephesus, part of the problem, and this is what Timothy was facing, just like Titus was, with these false teaching Judaizers, they were forbidding marriage and advocating abstaining from foods, which God created, as Paul shared with Timothy, to be gratefully enjoyed. And so Paul wrote to Timothy to let him know that the pure, true believers now know everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it was received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by the means of the word of God and prayer. And this is such, my, my heart really aches and sympathizes for first century Jewish Christians. This, this, is, this is a change, right? This is a, a major change. The dispensation of the theocratic nation, Israel, was closing and the launch of the church age was beginning. Okay? And I, and I think that should, um, it's important for us to see that because there are things 
that um, are, are in the New Testament epistles that are helping even, that, that are intended to guide the Jews and their understanding. In Christ, God had set aside the ceremonial law regarding clean and unclean foods. And we see examples of this in Mark chapter 7. Um, Mark chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, Jesus uh, said, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Question mark. Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart but into his stomach and is eliminated? Thus, he declared all foods clean. Okay? So this was, this, this, these, are, these are changes that are taking place. Even Paul instructs the Colossians accordingly when he said in Colossians 2.16, No one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. In the new dispensation of the church age, Christ fulfilled all righteousness when he was the perfect sacrifice through the gospel. And so ceremonial laws were no longer necessary. To those who have obtained a righteousness that comes by faith, not by the law, all things are pure. And God used Paul to record and let Jewish Christians know that they can now eat what was once prohibited. And beyond that, they were also advocating to, to refrain from marriage. We understand that context, right? Jews were supposed to marry Jews, right? And now in Christ, now in Christ, could they marry other people? Could they marry those who came to faith? You look unsure. I see a lot of nods heads. Yes, that's correct. They were free. They were free when someone came to the faith. They now had the opportunity. They could marry a non-Jew. Okay, so this was a big time adjustment. And Paul wanted these Judaizers to see that what they eat or what they didn't eat had no bearing on their standing before God. And yet these false teachers were clinging to a prideful self-righteousness. And they were encouraging others to follow suit by clinging to Jewish myths and extra-biblical traditions and the commandments of men mentioned in verse 14. And this is why verse 15 continues with the following contrast describing these false teachers. But to those who are but to those who are defiled and unbelieving. And this is identity crisis number one, false faith. The sufficiency of the gospel addresses false faith. And this participle is describing false teachers in the context, uh, in this context of our passage, in what's called the perfect tense. And when something's in the perfect tense, it means that it was a, a past completed action with continuing results. All of you are so intrigued. But the perfect tense points to the fact that they were defiled and they continue to stay in the state of their defilement. And given the context, the context it seems to carry the sense of a, a ritual uncleanness. And one commentator explained it this way. It refers to people who have set up for themselves an external code of conduct by which they must gain God's favor and who have then failed to live up to it. In their own estimation, they are defiled and unclean before God because they have failed to live up to the code. He finishes by saying this, 
by establishing such a codified basis for their relationship with God, they are automatically unbelieving. Such a person, while highly religious and probably using the title Christian, is nevertheless unbelieving because he is not trusted in, quote, the righteousness which is by faith, end quote, Romans 9.30. The sufficiency of the gospel affirms that there is only one true righteousness, and it has nothing to do with codes or externals or righteous works. Neither Jew nor Gentile has the opportunity to go up to God and say, look at my resume. Here it is. This is, this is what I've done. We see a glimpse of this just even in Luke 18 and with, with the, the, the publican and the Pharisee. Right? Talked about all the things that he had done. The Pharisee in Luke 18. Well, the Greek word for unbelieving here is the exact same word that is used for believing with an alpha privative, okay? So there's an A that, that comes, the, the, the Greek word is pistos, and we talked about this word because it was uh, a word that could be translated and, and describes uh, children of elders. And we talked about the two different views that exist, whether that means faithful children or believing children, okay? And the word here is apistos, and it's translated unbelieving. And when we look at the entire context of the passage, we see clearly that it's identifying unbelieving false teachers. And though James 3.1 reminds us that not many of us should become teachers, not many of you become teachers. Why? Because they're going to receive a stricter judgment, a stricter Condemnation. What is just as bad as false teachers are the consequences of those who believe what they teach. And that it could potentially be Christ plus something, right? Christ plus what I bring to the table. Christ plus my spiritual resume. And somebody has appropriately said this. I, I appreciate it. I don't know who originated but Christ plus something equals nothing. Christ plus nothing equals everything. And it's so true. The sufficiency of the gospel demands a supreme trust in the righteousness of Christ. His righteousness alone justifies a believer standing before God. And that can only come through repentance of anything else that you're trusting in, turning from that, and fully trusting by faith in the righteousness of Christ alone. And we sang it in Christ alone. It's, 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 it's at the, the heart of who we are as believers. We, we take great joy in singing songs, worship songs, that reflect the reality of the perfect work of Christ. The lyrics, in Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his, and he is mine, bought with 
the precious blood of Christ. And all God's people say amen, amen, and amen. The sufficiency of the gospel addresses the Judaizers' false faith, false faith of Christ plus something. And it also addresses all the other false faiths of the world. As someone aptly said, we all believed in something falsely before we trusted in Christ alone. And so it's a fair question that needs to be asked. What does your spiritual resume say? Does it say in Christ alone? In Christ alone. Or do you attempt to add something to your list of righteousness? We are no different than the false teachers of Paul's day if we attempt to trust in Christ plus something when it comes to our standing before God. And I know that there are many in this room that the only thing that they will ever, ever put on their spiritual resume as it relates to their justification is what, my friend? In Christ alone. In Christ alone. But I would be foolish to think that God might use his word and that God might use me as a messenger to maybe talk to somebody who has built up within themselves and is distancing themselves from the one true righteousness and that there's somehow a code that is creeping into your life and into your heart that is, is taking an effect on you that is not allowing you to see and uh, appreciate the gospel for all that it is. And for the young people that are here, I don't know when you had your encounter or if you have with, with the Lord and, and been brought to a place where you have come to the end of yourself that you have gone all in for Jesus Christ, for his sake. Your life is in Christ alone. Your identity is in Christ alone. You have come to a place where you have asked God to forgive you. You recognize the fact that you are a sinner and that you missed the mark. And you said, God, just like the tax collector, be merciful upon me, a sinner. And I want to follow you. My life is yours. I'm living for you. And then to be around other teenage Christian friends that are going to support you in that, who want to walk with you in that, not the ones who are are maybe living by the codified righteousness. I go to church. I even go to this Bible study. I do this. I do that. Okay? And yet, they're the ones that might lead you astray. And we all have to address false faith. And one of the greatest challenges that you'll ever face, and I hope that I can be used 
as a blessing to those that are in our youth. And I, I'm so thankful for the servants that we have that want to invest in their lives to help them see and understand the difficulty that's going to come as you enter into junior high and as you enter into high school and as the things of this world start to pull and tug back at you and that you're going to have to somehow be cool to fit in. And then you're going to have to do certain things. It's not... And if you think honoring Christ with your life is going to be cool by the world's standards, I think you already know the answer to that question. They'll call you foolish. It will involve persecution. But you can link arms with other people around you and be greatly encouraged. Well, there's a second identity crisis. It is this, false purity. The sufficiency of the gospel also addresses false purity. Verse 15 continues, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In the Greek, there is no verb here, but commentators agree that it's aptly supplied in translation. And by the way, this is the third use of the word pure in this verse, and the negation of nothing is a marker of their gospel defection. And one theologian said it this way, such people, such self-righteous false teachers do this, they're forever drawing the circle of the acceptable smaller and smaller, right? They're, they're, it's their standard, and they keep drawing it smaller and smaller. Such a good picture. They are self-righteous judges of what is pure and what isn't. Food, clothing, education, social status, friends, Associations, everything becomes scrutinized vigorously by, to, to the point that the, the, nothing can even be deemed as, as pure because the heart behind the scrutiny is impure at the root. And only the gospel can free someone from this incar incarceration of self righteousness and judgment of others. True purity is only possible through a gospel converted heart. And God's word gives us instruction to determine if something's pure and honorable. And I alluded to this passage earlier, but it will serve us well to turn there because it's really right next door to Titus in 1 Timothy. Actually, you have to go past 2 Timothy to the left if you'll turn there with me. 1 Timothy 4. 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 and 5 say this. For everything... Created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means, by means of the word of God and prayer. And ironically, this is the passage that Paul shared with Timothy to refute the Judaizers in Ephesus that were judging others because they were eating unclean uh, foods and they were marrying Christian women now who were converted but they, who did not have a Jewish heritage. And in the end, what settles purity debates? God's word and prayer. We look to the scriptures to seek understanding of what God's word has to say about something, a decision about um, something that we're going to do. And if God's word doesn't speak to it, then we pray and ask the Lord to give our conscience and our minds clarity about it. And if our conscience is clear, we can move forward. But if there's a reservation, 
If there's a check in your spirit, don't dismiss it. Don't dismiss it. Be sensitive about that. Be sensitive to it. You can seek the counsel from other spirit-filled believers. God uses that, and their guidance can help us see his will with clarity as well. And so, this again allows us to see that through the gospel that the impurities, uh, the, the, the judgmental impurities of what is considered righteousness are, are addressed. Well, there's a fitting, this is a fitting transition to our third identity crisis for false teachers because there's some overlap. Identity crisis number three is false thinking. The sufficiency of the gospel addresses false thinking. Verse 15 says, uh, finishes by, by saying, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. And the utter contrast to the thought of finding anything pure is the fact that both their mind and their conscience are defiled, which is indicated by this, the Greek conjunction it's, it's Allah in the Greek, and it's, it's the strongest conjunction, but it's used to set the stage for the strongest contrast possible here. And the same Greek verb that is translated defiled earlier in the verse is used again here, and it points to something in their past that leaves them in their current state of uncleanness. But now what, what's defiled gets specifically designated. The, the first thing that the Lord leads Paul to mention is their defiled mind. This points directly to the corruption of their thinking and reasoning. Having rejected the gospel that promises righteousness through faith, they are unable to think clearly or correctly about cleanness and uncleanness before God. And the Greek word for mind here is nous. And you've heard me mention this before, but I believe that it's probably one of the most important theological aspects that we need to have a grasp on that relates to our biblical understanding of humanity, a, a biblical anthropology. And that is that we all function with fallen minds. Right? What The Greek word is nous. I'll do a little play on words. What do, what do you think of, though, when I, when I say the word nous? Right? Rope. That's what, that's, that's what we think of. That's actually a very fitting picture when we, when we think about the mind. Why? Because um, um, that is our mind in the state of fallenness is dead. It is dead. Ephesians 2 affirms this for this, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, right? Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. That is our state as an unbeliever. And it was the state of the fallen, depraved minds of the false teachers. But what can set us free? What cuts the noose? What sets the mind free? The gospel. The gospel. The gospel frees us and literally cuts the noose from the bondage that we have due to the noetic effect of the fall. And it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance 
in salvation. And repentance literally, and we've shared this before, literally means what? A renewal of the mind, right? So that we can not be conformed to this world, but that we can be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Romans 12, 2. And false teachers live in bondage to their corrupt thinking and reasoning, and the sufficiency of the gospel addresses their great need for the illuminated understanding of the scriptures that only God can grant. Yes, this is true for us as well, until God rescued us from our corrupt thinking and foolish reasoning. Did you know that every time that you have an impure thought that God provides a dozen, a dozen or more thoughts that, that, that you can have that honor him? Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is lovely, whatever is good, whatever is excellent, whatever is worthy of praise, right? Philippians 4, 8, right? And that's the battle. That's the battle for our mind. like a strong bleach or laundry detergent, lifts the stains out of clothing so God's word renews our minds so that we can rightly think and dwell on that which will bless us, not leave us discouraged. Well, there's a second factor of defilement that Paul shares with Titus, and that's the defiled conscience. And this word describes the moral, I call it the moral compass, the moral awareness by which decisions are made. And Paul emphasizes this in 1 Timothy 1.5. Again, in the context of dealing with false teachers, he says, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For believers, our inner moral compass is sharpened by the gospel and is directly related to our genuine faith, unlike false teachers whose consciences are seared or they're, they're sealed with with a codified righteousness, just like you sear a steak on the, on, on, when, you're, when you're grilling it, right? It seals the, the juices in. A seared conscience is the mark of someone, in this case, the false teacher's codified righteousness that's in their heart. And the sufficiency of the gospel exposes it by shining the spotlight of truth and revealing false, fallen thinking and reasoning. So practically, what impact should our understanding of this passage have in our lives? Beyond clean or unclean foods, what are some other contemporary issues that come up where the grace of the gospel can overcome? How can we ensure that our thinking and our conscience are free from any type of codified righteousness? You know, and one of the things that's first practical step is to just engage in conversation with the people who know you best. If you're married, that's your spouse. If you're single, it's your best friend. And, and just asking them the question, if you have a self-righteous spirit, if there's any tendency, kids, you can ask your parents if you glorify the sins of others while looking past the sins of your own. That would be a marker you can ask the question, is it easy for you to be critical or judgmental of others? You can read and meditate on Matthew chapter 7, the opening five verses. 
You can study Romans 12, 16, which says this, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind. Do not allow your mind to elevate. Do not allow yourself to think that you are better than somebody else, that you are better and more deserving than other people. I'm, I, I, just Sharon, you guys are getting to know me uh, in many ways still. I just, I, when I drive down the road and I end up being at a stoplight, which is very common in LA, wasn't all that common in Hickory. A lot more stoplights out here. But I, I look around, you know, I want to see what's going on. And it's pretty funny just driving here and you go through uh, Fullerton College and but I look, I, you know, sometimes I wonder what people are thinking, right? And you can see just as they're processing things, yeah, you know, nobody knows what's in the mind of a man but, but, but the Lord, okay? But I see the, the, the fallenness. I, you see the anger. You see the depravity of man just through actions, just in driving. It's there. It's there. And I say that because I have to check my own spirit. Because, I, you know, just as it relates to uh, allowing, it, it causes me to praise God and rejoice in my appreciation for the gospel. That God has rescued me from so much, from many ways thinking things that I should not think. I rejoice in that. Proverbs 16, 18 is another great verse for us. Our time's disappearing. The sufficiency of the gospel gives us liberty for living by grace through faith and addresses the matter of false thinking about ourselves and about others. Well, there's a fourth identity crisis for false teachers, and it's their false relationship. Starting with verse 16, it says this, they profess to know God. And the sufficiency of the gospel brings us to a true, genuine relationship with God. And false teachers, though highly religious and though they profess to know God, the word for profess literally means to say the same thing, and it carries the sense of saying something in publicly, saying it publicly. And the present tense tells us that such folk habitually claim to know God. They want people to know, oh, I, they know God. And there are two words in the Greek language that can be translated to know. One reflects knowing someone or something relationally, personally, experientially. And then one just represents just having knowledge or information about them. And that's the word that the Apostle Paul uses here. Their claim is superficial and surfacy, but it isn't reality. And though they might think they really know God in their relationship, it isn't deep. It isn't abiding. It isn't personal. And again, only the Lord can evaluate a person's heart, but there's usually a track record of visible morality, intellectual knowledge, and religious involvement. And I think one of the, uh, uh, another marker of, of false teachers is just their inability to and lack of desire to commune with God's people because very few of them if any are able to to relate because nobody nobody can reach their status nobody 
gets God like they do. Well, this is connected to the fifth and final identity crisis for false teachers. Not only does the sufficiency of the gospel address false faith, false purity, false thinking, and false relationship, but it also addresses the false fruit in their lives. Verse 16 finishes by saying this, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good thing. In the Greek, the pronouns him and their don't exist, and that's why it might be italicized in your Bible translation. And it's obvious who we're referring to here. It's false teachers who profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. There's a lack of genuine fruit due to no genuine relationship with God, and this becomes the testimony of their lives. Instead, false fruit generated by their flesh and false motives becomes evident. And it's just like walking by that department store window and you see that amazing, if you've been Pier 1 Imports or the Hobby Lobby, you see one of those amazing baskets of fake fruit, right? It's like, whoa, I'm usually hungry. So, you know, you see them, you're just like, oh, yeah, it looks so real. But we know what would happen if we, we, we pick up. It would only disappoint. It would only discourage because it's not real. There is no substance Paul uses three very direct words to describe their nature. The first word translated detestable, and Jesus actually uses the noun form of the same Greek word when speaking of antichrist in Matthew 24, 15. And then in the Septuagint, it has a close connection with idolatry, which seems appropriate because such folks are serving something else besides God, and God considers that detestable or an abomination. The second word is translated disobedient and describes a person who will not be brought under the authority of someone else. It's resistance. It's that same uh, um, description of the rebelliousness that we talked about, that the person that wants to um, be autonomous. Third and final word is translated worthless and is included with the phrase for any good deed. Detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. The sufficiency of the gospel also addresses the issue of false fruit. Only through the gospel can someone be saved from the facade of false works and experience the saving power of God mightily working through their lives. And here in Paul's final comment about these false teachers, he says that despite their profession of knowing God, their lives prove that they do not. And Paul said the same thing about the Judaizers in Ephesus who hold to a form of godliness but deny its power in 2 Timothy 3.5. And as was the case in Ephesus, the Cretan opponents were also in great need of the transforming power of the gospel. And as I shared last week, verse 16 is the hinge point, the hinge verse of the epistle. In chapter 1, Paul has addressed the initial issue of making sure that godly leadership is established. And then he's called our attention to this serious problem of false teachers in Crete. And in this verse, he identifies a key issue. And this is what it is. The opponents are teaching that what a person believes and how a person lives are not related. And that godly living is not a necessary corollary to God's salvific plan and work. 
And this is why in the next two chapters, after giving instructions for different groups within the church, Paul will give Titus these two creedal statements that show that obedience comes out of salvation and must come out of salvation, for it is the purpose for which salvation was provided. The sufficiency and supremacy of the gospel will unleash our understanding of Titus. Well, we, we saw the sufficiency of the gospel address pseudo-identities, false faith, false purity, false thinking, false religious uh, relationship with God, false fruit. And the final point of our sermon, which was never intended to be a full point, but rather a conclusion to chapter 1 and an introduction to chapters 2 and 3. The supremacy of the gospel assists sound doctrine. And Paul begins chapter 2 with this translation, but as for you, he's talking directly to Titus. He says, but you, but you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. After having thoroughly described false teachers on creed and their need for the gospel, now Paul contrasts what should be true of Titus. He's to speak. He's to actively speak. He's to continually speak. It can be translated, make it your habit to speak the things that are fitting for sound doctrine. In the face of falsehood and false teachers, Paul was charging Titus and every elder and pastor in the church age as well to preach the gospel and stay committed to cutting the word of God straight. Why? Why? These things are fitting for sound doctrine. Again, we see the Holy Spirit lead Paul to mention sound doctrine. We talked about this word, remember? It's healthy. Healthy doctrine, which harkens back to the primary duty of the elder overseer in verse 9, and that's to have a firm grasp on God's word and the gospel that allows a church to continue to be exhorted in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Well, this general theme of the letter is now going to be developed with another general theme of the letter, which places an emphasis on godly living. And the high calling of the gospel is directly related to the godly living that should take place in the church. Or if I can say it using our concluding point, the supremacy of the gospel assists sound doctrine. Teaching that impacts not just what we believe, right? It, sound teaching doesn't just impact what we believe. It impacts how we live. And we're going to see this develop in light of the gospel and the sound teaching that comes in the remaining chapters of the book of Titus. Please pray with me. Gracious Father, what a privilege to preach and teach on a message that allows us to see and exalt the gospel in such great measure. That it truly is the answer for every single identity crisis that every false teacher is victim to. And that it truly is the answer to every identity crisis for a person that's walking on this planet that is committed to to serving something else besides you and your glory. 
how practical it is, how amazing it is. And Lord, we need you. Thank you for allowing me to be at a church with godly people who want to learn and grow. Father, who are willing to listen to a sermon that is in many cases twice as long that it might be at another church. That they would have an affection for your word and want to grow. And we rejoice in all that you're doing in our midst. We pray that you'll continue to sanctify us, allow us to be receptive to you. Allow us, Heavenly Father, not just to have a passion for the person of Christ and the works of Christ, but help us, Father, to have a passion also for the words of Christ, to what he says, to what he would ask of us. Give us sensitive hearts. And we thank you for the way that you'll work through your word and guide us by your spirit to continue to grow. We rejoice in all that's taken place this morning. We pray for endurance as we uh, enjoy fellowship, as we enjoy each other and have equipping our second hour. We look forward to um, your continued growth and work in our lives. And we praise you for it in the name of Christ. Amen.